the book of Job, chapter 25. Today in our study of the book of Job, we come to the final speech of Job's friends. It is made by one of the three. Three men who were friends to Job, who when they hear about Job's troubles, set out from their homes, which were quite distant. And just to review a bit, Eliphaz the Temanite was from the city of Teman, one of the two major cities in Edom, which is south of the, of the Dead Sea. Bildad is the Shuhite, and as best we can tell, he may have been as far away as from modern-day Iraq, the Euphrates River. And Zophar the Amathite is between Beirut and Damascus. So these are not casual buddies who, have, who live around the corner, who live in the next town. These are deeply devoted friends who, when they hear, they, by agreement, uh, decide to go to sympathize and to comfort their friend Job. And even from a distance, when they see him, they are shocked and horrified. And they offered traditional gestures of grief, as we saw. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And as one author puts it, here is genuine friendship here is deep ministry. Because these men, when they sit down with Job, Job is sitting outside the city in the city dump. Okay? It takes a true friend, I think, to sit down with you in the city dump for seven days and seven nights. And Job is covered with sores, and who knows what type of disease he might have. It might be contagious. And these friends are willing to risk contagion and public censure by standing with their friend Job. They are amazing in their solidarity with Job. But in chapter 3, Job cries out and curses the day that he was born. And his friends feel apparently the need to respond to his statements. And we have then the cycles of speeches in which they go back and forth between Job's friends and Job. We come to the last speech of these friends. And in part, I don't know about you, but you may feel a sense of relief that you know, we are tired of hearing these men pick at Job in his helplessness, almost like poking time and time again at an open wound. We've seen from the very beginning, in the very first sermon I did on Job, and when we began this series, is that one of the problems in dealing with them is that they are not totally or completely wrong. In fact, there is much in what they say that is good and that we would agree with. And so the book of Job does not present them as hypocrites who have come to gloat. They are friends. They are not heretics who offer uh, false doctrines or strange doctrines. No, they are followers of God, as is Job. And they are not fools who produce no serious arguments. These are wise men then what is the problem? The problem is that in applying the truth to Job's situation, they misrepresent God and they misjudge Job. What we saw last week in chapter 24, Job spoke of the reality that there is great wrongdoing in the world and God seems to do nothing about it. The first verse of chapter 24, Job asks, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know Him look in vain for such days? In other words, 
Why doesn't God say, okay, on such and such a day, I'm going to judge the world? God has set a day in which he will judge the world. We just don't know when it is. Rather than taking up the challenge and and trying to disprove uh, Job's contention, Bildad now speaks in terms of his theological and doctrinal system. I think his frustration can be seen in the fact that this speech is the shortest by far of all of them. Uh, In my uh, Bible, verse number six is at the bottom of the page. You turn the page expecting there to be more, but no, in fact, there are only five verses in which Bildad speaks in this final speech. And I think we have a sense of uh, his frustration. He's run out of things to tell his friend. He loves Job and he is convinced that Job has done something horrible. And if Job doesn't repent, it's all over. But Job will not listen to him. Unfortunately, we see it sort of encapsulated in this chapter. That's not unfortunate. What is unfortunate is that the way that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar view God paints them into a corner and there is no wiggle room, if you wish. They have absolutized their doctrine and there is no escape. Their view of God affects their view of man. It affects their view of creation. And therefore, they can only condemn their friend. There is no other option for them. So let's look at this final speech. It may surprise you, after all the negative things I've said about Bildad and these friends and the speech, that it begins with a doxology. Look, if you would, at verses 1, 2, and 3. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? It's a beautiful doxology, I think, which sums up Bildad's view of the nature of God. That God rules over all authority. God maintains peace. God commands all forces, all powers, if you wish, in creation. God is the light of the world. God is holy. God is pure. And which of these things would we disagree with? None. We would say, Amen. We agree with you, Bildad. God is power. He is peace. He is perfection. He is purity. So what's the problem, Damon? What what is the problem? Why do we disagree with Bildad? I think the problem is what Bildad does not say. What he says, we are in agreement with. What he does not say, I think, is incredibly important. What he does not say is that God is presence. That is, God is one who is present in this reality. Bildad, as the other friends, speak of God who is so high and mighty, so far away, that he is not here. He is transcendent. He is outside of creation. He is not inside creation. He is not eminent. And this is, wrong. this is wrong on Bildad's part. He should have mentioned this. But he doesn't mention it because in many ways it's not part of his theology. It's not an important part of it at least. He should have also said that God is personality. That is that God is a person. One with whom we can and should interact. 
That is what we were made for. But in order to defend God against Job's accusations that God doesn't do anything about the wicked people, Bildad takes God and puts him so far out of reach as to make him a different God altogether. For Bildad, God is unapproachable. It's absolutely unapproachable. And who is Job to think that somehow he could argue with God, that Job could go to the court of heaven and make a case before God? God is so far away. Job, who do you think you are? Well, what he should have said is, Job, you need to be a little humbler. You need to understand that you are not perfect. I think that would have been the tact to take. But instead... Bildad puts God out of reach and sees him as unapproachable. And I think Bildad would have thought that he was doing God a favor. But when we distort the truth of who God is, even in the cause of defending him, we speak lies and we're not speaking the truth. And so in this final speech of the friends, we see their view of God God is unapproachable. Well, you know, the way that we view God will determine the way that we view humanity. And so if God is unapproachable, then the conclusion that one must draw is that mankind is not redeemable. An unapproachable God means a humanity that cannot be redeemed. No matter what a person does, Righteousness and purity cannot be achieved. But wait, you would say, well, okay, the first part we agreed with, but this part we do not agree with when it, uh, in Bildad's view of mankind. Isaiah wrote, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So we would say, Bildad, you're wrong. But you know what? I would argue that in many ways, Bildad is closer to the truth than is Job. Bildad argues that man is powerless to redeem himself. How can a man be righteous before God? And we would say, on his own, her own. No, no human being can. How can one born of woman be pure? We would say, on our own, it is impossible. Job, on the other hand, believes that if given the chance, he would go straight to heaven, to the court of heaven, and make a case and win his case against the creator of all reality. So who do we stand with? Bildad or Job? I think we're more comfortable with what Bildad says, but but Job, at least as the book unwinds, as it unfolds, Job is the man of faith. So who do we stand with? It has been suggested that the difference between the two men is that Bildad has faith in his theology and that Job has faith in his God. Or as one author puts it, the difference is between a static faith and a dynamic faith. And what does that mean? And I want to be very, very careful here. We have a statement of faith 
as a church which we hold to. And personally, I stand by God's grace firmly with both feet and the Reformed tradition. It is important for us to hold to what we believe to be the truth, because there is such a thing as truth, as Dr. Schaefer used to say, capital T truth. That People use the word truth so often that it's lost its meaning, but there is such a thing as truth. We are not in this congregation relativistic in our thinking. We don't say, well, it's all relative. We do not believe that situations dictate our theology. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that God is infinite and that he cannot be limited by our doctrine or our theological systems. When one faces the difficulties of life, when one is overwhelmed with the difficulties of life, as happened to Job, one can either hold to our theological system blindly or one can struggle with the realities of those difficulties. So, for example, I believe that God is sovereign. Our lives are in God's hands. Uh, as Bildad put it, dominion and all belong to God. I love the words of the psalmist who puts it so succinctly in Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That is the God we worship. But does that mean when we see someone suffering or when we suffer that we say, oh, oh, it's God's will? Or do we say, well, you know, it's a fallen world. Let me explain it to you. Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, uh, sin came over the world. God subjected the creation to vanity. And because of their sin, uh, suffering and death came into the world. And that's why you're suffering. I don't disagree, by the way, with those statements. God's will, it's a fallen world. But I think I might disagree with the spirit in which oftentimes they are spoken. They are true, but I think we need to be careful. I think it is right that we would struggle to understand the creator of this world, the God of the universe, who could end all suffering in an instant. And he doesn't. I want to understand him better. I think the process usually begins when we ask the question, why? We want to know, why is this happening to me? This is what happens to Job. But as we grow in grace, hopefully the question changes from why to who? Who is this God that we worship, that we say is wonderful and great and the sovereign of the universe, who allows horrible things to happen in people's lives? I think that we should want to know him, to know the one who made us, to know his purpose for our lives, and to know the joy of communion. This is not the case with Bildad or his two friends. They have theology. They have a doctrinal system. And by the way, of the three, Bildad is the traditionalist. Eliphaz is the one 
who holds the spiritual experience. But Bildad's like, I have my theological system. I have faith in my doctrine. Job, on the other hand, has a dynamic faith. His faith is in action. He wants to know what God is doing and why he is doing these things. For Bildad, I don't think he's thought this through, but an unapproachable God means an unredeemable humanity. We do acknowledge, as I read to you from Isaiah, our best is filthy rags. But we should recall another part of Isaiah. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is redemption. Because God is not unapproachable. God is presence. He is person. And he has provided redemption. The third part, I think, or the third point here in Bildad's speech is that creation is imperfect. And again, we would not disagree with him. But the reason he brings creation into it, if you look at verse number five, if even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. In other words, if in God's eyes, the moon and the stars are imperfect that the brightness of the moon is nothing to God. I mean, God is the light of the world. And if the stars themselves are not pure in his sight, if that's true of creation, then, then what do we say about human beings? Bildad uses the imperfections of creation, particularly the moon and the stars, to draw or to set up a comparison with humanity. And again, we find ourselves in agreement with Bildad. While he is pessimistic about creation, he is right that creation is deeply flawed. In Romans 8, we are told that the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That is, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God has caused all of creation to come under the decay of sin. We are, if you wish, in entropy. We are deteriorating. All of creation is in decline and in decay. And yet for Bildad, as bad as the moon and the stars are, they are far better than any human being. Because here is his fourth and final point. And he's really painted himself into the corner now. For Bildad, human beings are insignificant. Look at the final verse of this chapter. So begin at verse five. If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. It's interesting that in verse five, Bildad speaks of the moon and stars. And in verse 6, he speaks of mankind or a human being. And by the way, I, I tend to think that while he speaks in general terms, uh, Bildad's actually talking to Job. And without saying it directly, he's basically saying to Job, Job, you're a maggot. Okay? You're a worm. But the contrast or the comparison between the moon and stars and mankind is interesting because we find this elsewhere in Scripture. In Psalm 8, which was written by David, 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. So there it is again, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And you notice the contrast there. What is man? Son of man. Here in verse number six, man, a son of man. You see that comparison. But David and Bildad reach I think, opposite conclusions. In fact, we would agree on some level when you compare all of creation to one single human life that doesn't even, you know, when they go up in space and they look down at Earth, you can barely make out the outline of the continents. And one human being, what is one human being in comparison to the moon and the stars? We seem so insignificant. But David and Bildad reach opposite conclusions. David says, yes, we are small, but we are unique. We are not like the moon and stars. As David goes on to say, you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Human beings are unique. We are not insignificant. We are unique, set apart from creation. Bildad, on the other hand, says, you know, the moon's not so hot. No, the the light there's not so good and the stars are not pure. But man, they are so far better than any human being. Human beings who are merely maggots and worms. I assume that you know what a maggot is, a worm. They symbolize a wretched, lowly existence. They have the smell of death about them decay and rot. And again, I think Bildad didn't realize he was going down this path. But having said that God is unapproachable and human beings cannot be redeemed and creation itself is imperfect, the final plunge off the cliff into the abyss is to say that human beings have no significance. As I said, I I do think that Bildad may not be making this grand theological statement. He may, in fact, sort of be pointing the finger at Job. But as it is written down, we have a man who sees humanity as insignificant. He is faced with his friend. By the way, his friend, Job, says in chapter 7, verse 5, My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. So he's faced with a man who is covered, who has worms and maggots in him. He's seen a man at his lowest. But is he right to say such a thing? I think generally speaking, we would all have a negative reaction to verse number six and say that Bildad is way out of line in saying such a thing. And I would agree with you. But I wonder if if we have a negative reaction for the right reason. As with so many things, it is possible to be right, but for the wrong reason. We live in a time and a generation in which self-esteem and self-worship are not merely omnipresent. They are the order of the day. And for someone today to call another human being a maggot or a worm would be seen as a social transgression that perhaps could not be forgiven. How dare you belittle another human being? 
and popular language, you're dissing that person. You're calling into question their self-image. And our culture will have none of verse number six. But before we begin to congratulate our culture, please understand that if we were to tell someone in this culture, you are a sinner, that would also be a social transgression. How dare you judge me? How dare you say such a thing about me? I should mention to you, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you already know this, that in other places in the Old Testament, God calls people worms. Okay? So before we start you know, setting up the stake and getting the wood ready to burn Bildad, we should understand that, that the language used, at least, is not out of place in the Old Testament. So is Bildad right or wrong? Our culture would say that he is wrong, but biblically, what do we say? I would say that he is wrong. Biblically. You see, first of all, we would say that human beings are made in the image of God. They are not insignificant. But secondly, we would say that human beings are sinners. They are rebels against the one who created them. And the second fact does not cancel out the first. You see, when I say to someone, you're a maggot. I may, in fact, be, say, be saying to them, I think as Bildad was, you have no significance. And you know, we live in a time, and I, I think human, human history is just filled with, with such verbal violence. We didn't need Jerry Springer uh, to sort of enlighten us in this regard, that people throughout history have belittled each other. I remember talking to a, an acquaintance years ago uh, who was a, a Christian and, and deeply concerned that when he would speak to people, particularly people he disagreed with or people he was angry with, they would say, you know, you're slime. And I think we all, if, if you drive any, anywhere in Southern California, we all have our own little vocabulary of words that we use about people who are not driving the way that they should. But in doing so, we are, in fact, if we're not careful, saying that they have no significance. We are belittling them. But to say that someone is a sinner is not to belittle them. It is, in fact, to assign them significance. Of all of God's creation, what part of God's creation is given the name sinner? That is, one who violates God's law. Dogs don't sin. Animals, plants don't sin. We do. We who are made in the image of God. And one day we will stand before God. Which means every choice we make has eternal, I would even say cosmic significance. And so there's a world of difference between calling someone a maggot and calling someone a sinner. We are contradictions. Uh, Schaefer used to say that human beings are gods in ruins. We are made in the image of God. We bear in us the image of the eternal creator God. And yet we are sinners. The image of God has been marred in us. 
And so we come to the end of the friends. And what do we say to them? You know, friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, so far we know, we appreciate your devotion to Job. But we would have preferred that your faith was in God rather than in your theological system. I think the deepest fear that these friends had is a fear that many Christians have today. They are afraid to say, I don't know. When faced with their friends' difficulties and the horrific things that had happened to him, and Job just cries out with this primal scream in chapter 3, the friends don't sit silent. They should have. They should have said, you know, I believe that God is sovereign and that he is in control and that he rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. I don't know why this has happened to you, Job. But I believe that God does all things for a purpose. Job is already on the pilgrimage to arriving at that conclusion. They started at the same gate. The four friends, the three and Job. That is, if you do wrong, you'll be punished. If you do right, you'll be rewarded. They all agreed with that. But you know what? The friends are still at the gate. They've never moved from there. Job has already begun the pilgrimage of faith. And it hasn't been pleasant. There was anger. There was despair. There was great fear. But as we've seen in the past weeks, Job is now... The light is beginning to come on and he's beginning to see that God has a purpose. He has to look back over his shoulder to see his friends. They have not budged. And again, I want to be careful. We do hold the truths of Scripture to be true. But I don't fully understand them. I don't fully comprehend Scripture. I don't fully comprehend God. And so who am I to put God into a box and to say this is the only way that God could act? Many years ago when I was younger, I reached a crisis point in my life. I would dare say it was the deepest crisis of my life. And the crisis came from this issue. Why is not God acting the way he's supposed to? The God I know in Scripture should act in this way, and he wasn't. And I didn't know what to do. I was able to speak to some people, to a very wise man, to explain to me that I had put God in a box. And God is the infinite personal creator of this world. He will not be contained in our box. We cannot say to God, you can only act this way. God is God and we're not. And in humility, we should bow before him. And I wish Job's friends had. We will, when we get to the end of the book, we will see that Job must pray for his friends. Because God is angry with them. Because ultimately these men of faith did not have faith in God, but in their doctrine. Job's faith is sort of shaky. He says some things that are very questionable, but he's on the move. He's working through the struggles.
And as we will see later in the book, he will come face to face with God. Let's pray together. Our Father, I ask that we would learn from Bildad and these friends who do love Job deeply and who seek to defend your honor against his accusations and his questions. I think we live in a time in which it is not popular to be on your side. That not only are you accused by unbelievers, but by believers as well. Who suspect that you really don't know what's going on or you're not doing a very good job of running this world. May we by your spirit realize you don't need our defense. You are the sovereign Lord. Dominion and all belong to you. You are transcendent, but you are not so high that you have left us. You are here with us in your creation. And you're not some impersonal force. You're one who is a person to whom we can speak, who speaks to us, who has spoken, and who ultimately revealed himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. May we stand for the truth and yet be humble enough to recognize that we don't fully understand the truth. May our faith not be in our rationality, our intellect, our theology, but in you, the living creator of this world. And may we treat people as though they have real significance because they do and not commit verbal violence against them, belittle them because of our own impatience or anger. We thank you for this beautiful day. Even as we pray, we hear the birds singing outside, and we thank you for the glory of your creation. We ask now that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. May you guide us through the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and sing the doxology together? benediction, make sure that you greet our newlyweds, uh, Mike and Emily. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.